I am Plata on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. The artist and historian Michael Kluckner joins me again. He recently published a new collection of paintings, his first in nine years, Here and Gone, Artwork of Vancouver and Beyond. It features surviving buildings and landscapes of Vancouver and rural British Columbia, as well as ones that haven't. There is also artwork from his travel sketchbooks, which he's uh, carried with him throughout the world, evocative, enjoyable depictions of Australia, Mexico, India, Indonesia, and Italy, among other places. I'll ask him about the forms of his art, as well as uh, what he captures on a regular basis throughout Vancouver. I'll ask him about the city as he views it in his years of living here compared to today. I'll ask him about the changing city and our memory of it. There's a lot of discussion of uh, how, how we should uh, build in the city, and it'll be interesting to get Michael's uh, view with his remarkable historical uh, knowledge. Um, we also know the death this past weekend of uh, Cornelia Oberlander. Michael Kluckner is uh, also the president of the Vancouver Historical Society and for many years has published award-winning, best-selling books, including Vanishing Vancouver, the second version of which he was uh, first on this program with in 2012. He is also uh, the author of the graphic novels Toshiko, Julia, and 2050. Visit michaelkluckner.com for more information. Here and Gone is published by Midtown Press. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Outline program, Michael Kluckner. Mr. Kluckner, good morning. Good morning, Joseph. Thanks for joining us. Um, I have uh, been, um, even before we started talking, the first time I talked to you was about nine years ago on the show, but before, even before then I was, I was a, such a fan uh, of your, your art as well as your work as a historian. Um, you're described as both. Um, is there one that you're more comfortable with, say? Well, the, the first thing I think about when I get up in the morning is, is art. And mm. then sometimes the art taps into some historical interest that I have, um, or there are just the other broader historical interests of, of living in a city that is intent on erasing its past. And so trying to uh, preserve something of, uh, of its past so that we try to become a complete city. Uh, so that goes on always as a kind of a sideshow in my life. But generally, I think what I, you know, what I try to do when I get up in the morning is to make some art that that uh, I won't tear up. Mm. Uh, you, you mentioned Vancouver is a city that um, erases its past. Um, isn't that expected, though, of of a city where uh, new people are coming in constantly? Well. Probably, but but ideally, I think a city that welcomed new people would be adding layers to it rather than and, and so I'm you know, trying to make a distinction between, let's say, um, a semi-dying city in um, uh, I don't know, let, let's say in the Maritimes, mm-hmm. uh, for example, where there's very little immigration, there's very little change, and people will say, well, our future is our past. There, you know, meaning tourism or something like yeah. that. That people will come to see effectively a period piece, and there are places in the States that are like that, and arguably um, uh, parts of Europe are like that, too, that their their, their past glories are really all that they've got. Um, my intention is always to try to, to counteract the clear-cutting mentality, which was here from the, from the first settlers who yeah. wiped out the forest and, and thought of, you know, thought of everything here as being a resource. 
to the people who are coming now who think of everything here as being a resource and that you can clear-cut it and you can, you know, you rebuild it and everything. And obviously there has to be room for both uh, in the city. Um, I, I just, from purely philosophical, environmental, just who I am, I, I've just been trying to counteract the... Uh, this tendency to say, well, we don't really have any history here. We don't mm. really have any buildings that are worth keeping or neighborhoods that are important that we can just build and rebuild and rebuild. And and, and partly just because that, that kind of capitalist narrative really annoys me. And, mm-hmm. and in addition to that, I guess it's just my desire to see a continuity, to see a, a, an increasing kind of sophistication in Vancouver that um, it hasn't had in the past. So we'll, we'll talk about some of the pieces in the book, but, but in terms of the forms themselves, um, there are paintings in here that are um, in color. Um, do, do you, uh, in terms of the medium itself, is, it, is that watercolor, say? Yeah, the, the, water, the watercolor thing is book illustration, I think has worked very well for me for, you know, effectively 40 years now. And, and, Part of the reason for that is that watercolors tend to be fairly small, mm. and books are fairly small. And with watercolor, you can, you know, you effectively you can reproduce the paper texture uh, in and mass produce it in the book. And so I really like it from that point of view. I also like it because it's not, um, you know, it's not so hyper detailed that it answers all your questions for you. Mm. Um, the the best watercolors I think are left a little bit unfinished, and so there's room for the viewer's imagination. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, so that that certainly is one reason why I would use watercolor in books, and and always have. And then the the other the other form that we see in the book are it's just black on white. Um, is that ink? Yeah, it's ink, and it's a kind of a. This would be the sort of drawing that you would do, you know, ink drawing, uh, and you call it, you know, in Italian, uh, chiaroscuro, in French, clairobscure, in Japanese, sumi-e. Um, this would be the sort of thing that you would do uh, if you wanted to do a woodcut. If mm. you wanted to, this, this would be your base drawing from which you would cut a block to do woodcuts. And I, I don't do the woodcuts anymore. But there's something about them that is very, very stark, um, and, and particularly in the ones in the book, the, the images of, of poverty in, yeah, yeah. Uh, in this city tend to be in that black-white uh, medium. And I, you know, also, it, it, um, you know, if I were to paint people in, in, in color in that, there, there's, there's always this overlay in, in something watercolor that, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel kind of charmed by it, regardless of what the subject is. And I didn't want that. I didn't want to be, in a sense, a kind of a um, uh, you know poverty tourist artist. And so doing doing these things in black and white, it in a sense kind of denatures the people, deindividualizes them, which of course is what their poverty is doing to them anyway. They're they're just becoming these people on the street with a handout. So I, I was trying to figure out as I was reading the book which of the two I prefer, um, and I, I can't, I still can't decide which of, of the because I like them both equally. Um, the, the watercolors I think are are um, so detailed that um, I think they're better than a photograph or Google Maps, um, and I think the, uh, the the black on on white is um, 
uh, e- even with with the how it evokes shadows, it, it, it's it's haunting and it's it's moving, and um, you know I can tell that you know it's the middle of the day or it's bright and shining even, um, even though we we the shadows are evoked as as um, well as they are. Yeah. That, that that whole thing about about using shadows in that medium um, that. It's it's defining space using shadows rather than using outlines. And mm. my my art friends, my my artist friends, tend to be tend to like them because there, there's you know what you're doing is you're creating a composition in which the shadows are defining the form. I mean, you know, we're we're not talking about content here. We're 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 talking about the. Um, you know the the technique itself or the medium itself, but they're you know they're a lot of fun to do. They're they're kind of interesting compositional things to try to represent a three dimensional world um, when all you've got going for you is the shadows and then the geometric perspective to give you a sense of depth. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I understand as you well as you write in the book that that um, a lot of the work in here and gone. Uh, was to have been part of an exhibition at Van Dusen. Um, mm-hmm. The pandemic has, has uh, put a pause on on that. So next year is that is that when we might expect? Yeah, it? I'm 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 hoping that next next spring and you know probably April. I I I think that if if I understand how they're going to reopen and, and this of course is all subject to what uh, you know what happens with COVID. Mm-hmm. But, um, if they're going to reopen, then um, probably in April this will go up, and there will be, you know, watercolors, and there'll be these brushing things that we've been talking about, and then some other, some big oil paintings, and just some other uh, odds and ends of stuff. Um, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful gallery space because um, it's not so commercial that you can't uh-huh. put in just things that that didn't really work out the way that you intended them to work out. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, not like everything is for sale in a sense. It's almost that people can come and um, become part of your creative process. Yeah. Did you find that a lot in terms of, of what you, say, do as art? I mean, is is, is that come out of conversations you have with people about, say, Michael, have you seen this place or have you, have you ever painted this? Oh, you know, there, there's a constant kind of uh, communication with people about, oh, I really like that, or are you interested in that, and so on. And, I, you know, I, I, my joke is that if I paint something, that someone will come along and tear it down. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, which, which isn't really true, although I, going back about 30 years ago, uh, when I, was, I began work on the book that became Vanishing Vancouver, um, I was working off a newspaper called the Real Estate News, I think it was. Uh-huh. I think it was called, and it was delivered door-to-door um, all over the city. And I would read through the ads, and I would look for ads that indicated that a place was being marketed primarily to builders or developers. Yeah. And then I would go off uh, with my paints and and and, uh, and look at the place and say, yep, they're going to tear this one down just because it was you know, too small for a big lot or, you know, a little bit deteriorated or it was in an area where the McMansion builders were uh, were working. And so a lot of uh, a lot of what I did in um, in those early books and to to a degree I still do that. You know, if I hear that something's threatened I you know, I'm I'm 
you know, I'm the moth drawn to the candle flame. You know, I can't, I can't help but getting close to it. So, so your art has also been a, a form of documenting, I guess, the the um, the life of the city. And it, 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 as I see in here and gone, it's a city that that still fascinates you, doesn't it? Yeah, and and not just because of the the demolitions. I mean, there's still a beauty to it there. You know the movement of the people coming through, and and in a sense, it's I, you know I suppose you can argue that for for much of my life, it's my muse. And because of travel having been restricted, it's kind of been my only muse for um, the last while. Yeah. Um, you know, I've always you know I've always been I suppose a documenter and an illustrator rather than you know what normally is seen as being an artist. Uh, nowadays, but um, you know, the, as be that as it may, I think there's an element of of art for me. Art for me is a tool of activism, mm. and you know, a relatively gentle tool. I would say I, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not doing these really didactic kind of aggressive pieces generally. Um, but you know, I, I think that you can you can present something in artwork to people in a book, and they can make up their own minds about. Uh, you know what the meaning of it is, what the beauty of it uh, is or was, and and how that works out. Now you write in the book that you grew up in Carisdale. Uh, what part of town do you live in now? Uh, Grandview, um, uh, East Vancouver, and um, yeah, typical uh, typical middle class kid, uh, second child of of a couple who met overseas when they were both in the uh, in the military, and they decided to. Um, to settle in Vancouver, uh, they were they were both from uh, both from Eastern Canada, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know that kind of uh, middle class uh, white upbringing that would be described as privileged. Although we were, you know, I mean, we were just kind of basic basic middle class people, yeah. and um, began to drift into the counterculture. Um, well, around the time that I finished school, um, you know, finished school in university, so around 1970, early 1970s, mm. and, um, you know, became kind of involved with that. I lived in San Francisco for a while, uh, lived in Australia, too. My uh, my wife's Australian, and mm-hmm. we, we moved down there. So, you know, we moved around quite a lot and traveled quite a bit. And so the drop back to Vancouver, as it, as it has been in, over the years, I, I, I think you moved back here, uh, what was it, 11 years ago? Yeah, about 11 years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's brought you back in, in, in terms of, of where you feel most at home in the city? Is that where you are now? or, or I mean, it seems that you can go anywhere and you, you find... Mm-hmm. You know, comfort or, or, or some recognition. Yeah, in, if you will. in a way, like we we'd been we'd been on a farm, and we we had a sheep farm in uh, in South Langley for a dozen years, and mm. then moved to Australia in 2006, and then came back here in 2010. And um, the we were we were looking around, and having been out of the Vancouver market for effectively 18 years, we thought, God, is there anywhere that we can afford to uh, come back in? And we initially thought about. Uh, well, we look in Kitsilano, and it was way too expensive. We couldn't we couldn't afford to get in there. And then we thought Main Street, you know, up Main and Main and King Ed, and, mm-hmm. and the old Hillcrest area, and oh, that's too expensive too. And then I thought, well, you know, Grandview's Grandview's pretty nice. And we looked around and um, and found a house and that had been on the market for a few months, and the only person interested in it was a guy who wanted to tear it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a you know, beat up old house, yeah. and um, 
And so we bought that and um, and set to work fixing it up. And the the first day that we were here, um, we met the um, the women across the street uh, who, who lived across the street. And one of them I had known uh, when we were both on the payroll of the Company of Young Canadians in the 1970s, in about 1976. So it was just this extraordinary small world Vancouver yeah, circles yeah. within circles thing. And um, uh, Jill across the street had, um, uh, she'd been on, Company of Young Canadians, for for people who've never heard of it before, was mm-hmm. a, a kind of a radical uh, funding organization within the federal government in the, in the first Trudeau years, and, and funding people who were doing community-type projects. And I was running a a, a small newspaper in Mount Pleasant at that point, and uh, Jill, my turned out to be my new neighbor, was uh, trying to put together an, a not-for-profit credit union. And so, you know, here we are, um, what's that, 35 years later, meeting up and living across the street from each other. And it just went from there. It turned out that there were people living on the next block and next block and so on and so forth who had, well, we had friends in common in that, mm-hmm. in that very Vancouver way because Despite its pretensions, Vancouver is still a very, very small town. Yeah, yeah. And and that to me is is part of its appeal. That um, you know you go you go to see a play and you run into the people whom you met at an art gallery. And it's not like a really big city where you where you get those pods of people and they don't intermingle quite so quite so much. In Vancouver, you you will you will meet people at, at a you'll see them at a lecture and then you'll you know you'll you'll see them on the street in your favorite part of town and that type of thing and and that's one of its appeals to me. Yeah, I sat next to you at, at the movies once, and oh, did we? <laughs> yeah, and I I I, um, I I thought it was kind of cool because here's here's someone that I was a fan of and that, that I eventually talked to uh, for the show. And and we just ended up next to, to each other at a, a screening of some documentaries, and um, that that says a lot about this this city, doesn't it? Well, it does, you know. And 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 my wife Christine grew up in Sydney, uh, uh-huh. in Australia, which is you know sort of Toronto size, double sure, double yeah. size of uh, Vancouver, and Sydney doesn't have those circles within circles. It's just that little bit too big, mm. and uh, and so she she's always been very amused by that fact that we. You know, we'd run into people here, and then we'd see them again over there, and, and uh, that type of thing. When you were growing up um, here in Vancouver, were you all then plagued by the same sort of existential questions about where Vancouver was headed? I mean, even in the 1970s, I guess people were talking about how unaffordable it was, thus perhaps unsustainable um, or unlivable. Um, do these questions come up throughout history? Well, they they certainly in the groups that I was hanging out with in the in the early 1970s, um, you know, were the kind of post hippie skeptic, um, quasi radical group of people who were questioning everything, and, and you know, we were the people who were, you know, I guess uh, parts of part of the campaigns for civic reform, for getting rid of the old NPA government mm-hmm. that Tom Campbell was. The, the mayor, uh, when, when Tom Campbell was the mayor, and bringing in a better group of people who responded more to community uh, desires and so on. And, you know, it was a different... Vancouver in, in the 1970s was a 
an odd beast in a way because the uh, it was deindustrializing very rapidly. The uh, all of the the forest companies that had been the mainstay of the local economy were consolidating and they were moving their well, they were moving out of False Creek mm-hmm. most dramatically. And uh, and the city was looking around and saying, well, how can how can we reinvent ourselves? And yes, affordability was a huge question, but. Um, Citizen activism was a part of that, and you know, became very engaged with uh, with that type of thing. So, and and then also in the '60s, that kind of long decade that continued on into the mid '70s, that a lot of people were asking that, you know, who am I? What am I doing here? What's important? And so there were all of the utopian. Uh, idealistic kind of experiments, whether they were co-ops, whether they were communes, whether mm. they were uh, that type of thing that were going on. And and so, you know, I've continued my my deep interest in that and and I'm very interested in seeing it coming around again in a way with um, young people in the crisis of the current Vancouver thinking, what can we do? How can we keep this city relevant to us so that it uh, so that it continues to work it just seems to me that the discussions now as opposed to then um center around uh an emergency if you will that um uh, very quickly um this city will be only a place for the rich or for for people who um don't really have a connection to the past and are ready to extinguish you know whatever is there that's a value historically um is that the sense that you get yeah i mean you know it's a weird it's a very very weird city that, that we have all of this wealth here um more wealth arriving all the time but we can't even fund a new art gallery mm. I mean, what, what does what does that say about why people are here I'm not saying that, that an art gallery is the most important thing in the world, but generally when you get people of wealth, think of Toronto. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a century ago, um, uh, even earlier in the century, in the wealthy times, that, that the people in Toronto created institutions that um, are very important. They, they, invested, they invested money in the city. That doesn't seem to be happening in Vancouver uh, really at all. And... So you say, well, well what, what's this place all about? And really what it's all about, it goes back to the day of Vancouver. Well, it's a, there's actually a city here is, is another question. And, you know, the city being, well, yeah, it's restaurants and, and, you know, it's got a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But um, in, in terms of that kind of the, the glue of, of big public cultural institutions, it just does not seem to have that. And, you know, arguably people have said over the years, well, it's, it, you know, it's bifurcated between um, uh, an Asian culture on the one hand and then a more North American culture on the other hand. And so what on the surface looks like a small town is actually even a smaller town than mm. it is because, uh, because that, you know, the glue in a way, I mean, in terms of people becoming involved with institutions, they're thinking you're doing anything really unique coming into you know, the the uh, wonderful group of indigenous artists who are here who are putting that back into the narrative and of course Museum of Anthropology and then yeah. a lot of what um, Vancouver Art Gallery has shown is, has uh, been really important 
You mentioned something in the book that that I've been thinking about for a while now since having read the book, uh, Here and Gone, um, and you you talk about um, what it was like for young people then, um, and and obviously now that that one can't be willfully poor in Vancouver, yeah. and it sort of um, gave me a lot to think about. And I and as I said, I have been thinking about it, and that um, you know when you were younger. Um, People could get by and 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 live in in you know an apartment that they could afford um, that was cheap, say. Um, but um, those kinds of places don't exist anymore. Yeah, there are very few of them, and they're they're being they're being tipped away at by um, city zoning policy, by um, its building codes. The kind of you know they weren't they weren't luxurious places. They weren't even good places were affordable places, and the idea being that you could um, work part-time or you could pick mm-hmm. up a bit of work freelance here and there, and it was enough. And as long as you weren't, um, you know, into conspicuous consumption in any way, that you could get by. And you think about, um, you know, people needing a phone with a data plan now. Well, that, you know, people didn't even have phones. Mm. Um there, there was very little in the way of um, of stuff to acquire other than the uh, well the inevitable um, buying LPs, you mm. know, buying music or having. I remember this boy, you know, if you could get an FM radio, you were really doing well <laughs> because uh, you know the cheap little AM radios were transistors, but nobody wanted to listen to AM radio by the time 1970 came around. And um, so, you know, I think in a way that's different that that. The tech has forced people to make more money, but then the, the city has changed to such a degree. And the the idea of being willfully poor was, um, you know, you imagine yourself being a student, um, but you're not a you're not a student of any institution. You're a student in the sense of of your own desires to, in in my case, let's say, to become, you know, better as an artist than uh-huh. I thought I was. And uh, so that that idea that you'd work yourself work yourself along, you'd have time to practice, you would have people you could bounce yourself. Musicians, I think, are the ones who are the closest to that now of living in that um, uh, living in that sort of never never land of yeah. needing time to practice, needing performance space or, or, or studio space at least, and uh, then you know tr- trying to trying to keep food on the table and trying to have a uh, roof over their heads. The second half of uh, the book um, is not a Vancouver. It's the gone part, if you will, that these are places that you've gone away to. Um, most, if not all, of the places I've never gone to. So so um, looking at them, um, I was quite moved by, by uh, seeing how people lived in other places, and, and I enjoyed that part of it. Um, if, if there wasn't a pandemic around us, Michael, and, and um, you could be anywhere else other than Vancouver, where would you be today? Probably, um, I think probably in South America. Mm. Um, probably um, back in Peru uh, or or Ecuador. Um, I think um, it's it, really hard to um, really hard to say. Or we would be we would go back to Morocco. I think mm. um, at, the, at the drop of a hat. Um, or or um, go to Malaysia again might be a you know might be a, a, a good destination, and 
you know, the other thing is more a family uh, business is going back to Australia because our daughter and and, uh, and grandson are there. Mm. But um, just in terms of that traveling, I would say that um, the, the the places unseen are are parts of South America that, that I would like to go to uh, again. And you know, well, I mean, Japan. I would go back to uh, at the drop of a hat. I think uh, it's just such a fascinating society and and um, beautiful aesthetics and and lots of things to paint. And so, when you look back um, at the works in the second part of the book, in the second half, if you will. Um, and I'm sure you've done this over the last 18 months or so because, you know, we've, um, uh, I'm assuming that you haven't been able to to travel outside of Vancouver. Um, They must evoke uh, some very special, pleasant memories, do they? Very much so. Um, They, and and that was the fluke of the book in a sense that that we decided, uh, my publisher and I decided that we'd do a book and it would have this, this non-Vancouver, this international stuff, and we made the decision just um, a week or two before the lockdown began, mm. when COVID was just something that was overseas and we didn't know whether it would make it here or not. And so it, it's come out and been a kind of um, a touchstone for me of looking back on places to travel. And, you know, as travel books generally do to people, you can... Um, you look at a picture and it takes your mind away and you think about traveling and, you know, think about, in, in, in my case, thinking about um, oh, places in Europe where we stayed and long trips there and that over the years. So um, very serendipitous to have this happen like that. And then also I'm very grateful just to my publisher for, um, uh, you know, for saying, oh, yeah, I think it would be great to have the international things in it because a lot of uh, BC publishing tends to be pretty local. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you want to do a book on Vancouver, well, it better be about Vancouver. You know, you don't don't really want to go outside that. But the uh, publisher I have, uh, Midtown Press and Louis Ongpeel, they've been, uh, they've just been great about saying, oh, yeah, we'll try this, let's try that. Yeah, and they did a marvelous job in terms of the printing because the the um, the artwork comes alive with, with, with the colors, um, and, and it's just aesthetically just wonderful to look at. Well, th- thanks, and and part of that is incredible digital prepress. You know, mm-hmm. that in the thirty thirty five years that I've been doing books with color, and the the ability that we have to to scan things and to get the color just right and then the printing technology itself is better than it used to be but that that idea of the um, of the paper texture of a watermark on a paper being beautifully reproduced as well as the color itself is great and um, and then just you know working away on this doing this in effect as uh, working at home on a computer and putting the whole thing together um, uh, rather than the old business where where it would go off to some company and then you would get these proofs back and you never knew whether the proofs were going to be true to the color that came off the press and so on. So mm. it's, it's a wonderful time to be in publishing. Yeah. So there's a lot of discussion, Michael, about um, uh, the, the future of the city. We, we've touched on this already, but um, just to get back to that for a sec here, I mean, there are questions as to what should be built and where. Uh, especially when it invariably displaces something older, perhaps worth saving. Um, I, I've asked this uh, of you in the past. Um, d- does everything have to be saved? I mean, how do, how do you view um, what Vancouver should be all about, or what what should it look like? No, I don't. I don't think everything has to be saved. But but if if you can. 
somehow part of a larger narrative. Let's imagine that it's um, uh, Japanese-Canadian settlement here and then displacement and internment. So let's imagine that it's a corner store Mm. um, somewhere in in the city. One at 44th and Main Street in Vancouver is a terrific example of that. Um, um, Just a little nondescript corner store, and you would say, well, People don't go to little nondescript corner stores anymore, so why not tear it down and get rid of it? But it it speaks to this these people who were here. They were they were um, they were born here, but they were of Japanese ancestry. So they were rounded up and interned during the Second World War, and uh, the the store continued along for a while, and then um, got uh, Chinese Canadian ownership. And uh, that continued for 35 years, and then eventually that moved on. You, so you 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 get a uh, historical narrative there that then you can, I think, you you can tell people about the past rather than this this rush to forget that we have now. Um, so, you know, not every place, of course, should be uh, saved. There are all kinds of instances where you'll you'll get something that can be added to. Uh, yeah. It doesn't have to be erased altogether. And in in the downtown, like the downtown sort of a situation in Vancouver, um, there's some pretty crappy buildings down there. Uh, most of them are gone now. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, every once in a while there'll be one that comes up and you think, well, you know, if we can keep that or even keep a part of it and then build onto it, then we have these layers in the city that um, uh, that are, you know, they, they, they say something about where we've come from. And then the new stuff can say about where we're going, but you know, uh, where we're going, of course, as we've been discussing, has been a real issue. Yeah. So I live around Fraser and King Edward, and um, uh, I guess 30 years ago there was a, a super value at, at Fraser and uh, I guess 18th, 17th around there, mm-hmm. and that, that burned down in a fire 30, 35 years ago, and, and so um, up in its place went these uh, sort of four-story um the, the bottom floor was commercial or say doctor's office and then and then you had two or three floors above that were that are residential um the same thing happened at Fraser and 29th i guess it's 28th mm-hmm. or 29th there used to be a supermarket there with a huge parking lot and then now that's uh, all apartments Fraser and 23rd, um it was um these rows of um these huge duplexes Mm-hmm. And then now that that whole block at twenty between twenty third and twenty second that's been that that's now they're, they're building um, uh, I think it's a four or five story uh, uh, rental um, building mm-hmm. uh, the, the uh, Fraser and uh, I'm taking of a tour of Fraser Street Fraser and nineteenth uh, that that city block there where the the old Flamingo restaurant was um, that is now um, that'll be rentals as well. Um, so, so where I live, the, the, the city is changing a great deal. I'm, I'm trying to think whether I like it or not. I mean, I, I can get nostalgic too. Um, it just seems ine- inevitable that um, on on a main street, especially around King Edward, you know, it's a major transit line, um, that we would see things like this. But, but I'm I'm curious to know about places like, say, further west on King Edward, around Camby, or, or, or up and down Camby, as we've seen. I mean. It, it, there, there's a great deal of loss there too, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, whether you know, you always ask yourself about about this as a change come in. 
um, what are we building and are we building a complete community that, that people of all ages can uh, get by in? And you look around your neighborhood and it isn't the person in spandex on a, on a bike that you worry about. It's the, the aged person who mm. needs to get groceries and, and get out to a doctor's office and so on. And so you have to ask yourself when the city starts uh, redeveloping uh-huh. uh, an area, puts in zoning and it gets redeveloped, um, isn't going to create a complete community. And, you know, for example, if you look at Hastings Street in, in East Vancouver, so out towards Nanaimo in the Hastings Sunrise area, you're getting um, uh, blocks of old shops that are coming down, and they're being replaced by uh, some retail on the main floor and then generally rental above. On the surface, that looks great, but who's renting the retail? And is mm. it just chain stores? Is it... Uh, are these the kind of places that are going in that are creating that sort of complete community? Because you you want to think about the the, the least capable members who are living in the community, and can they get out and shop? Can they go to a doctor's office? Can they do these things? We don't need to worry about the young people who are better able to move around. Although, mm-hmm. of course, we want the community to work for them too. And and so this is this is the issue. Um, you know, King Edward and Canby, uh, for example. I don't know where the people who are um, who live there how they're going to get out and shop. Are they going to drive yeah. uh, to shop? I mean, that doesn't seem like a complete community. It's got the density of a complete community, but it doesn't look like there's that kind of range of of, of shops and and offices and everything that would make it such. So. Um, and uh, your Fraser Street, for example, is reinventing itself quite nicely in some in some parts of it. But it's that idea of of how far can you carry your groceries? Mm-hmm. I think. And, and if you look at that, people have talked about this as the 15-minute city. Um, how does it work when you're 80 years old? Can yeah. you maintain your independence? And that's, you know, I think one of the biggest questions that Vancouver has to face. Um, the effects of COVID um, on Vancouver, um, do you think uh, when we get back to normal, if you will, I hate to use that phrase, but I mean, that's the only one I can think of at the moment, um, will the city have changed a great deal? I don't know what the office situation will be like in downtown Vancouver, mm. um, whether um there are going to be these kind of marooned office buildings that won't have any tenants in it. I don't, I don't kind of understand that part of the economy, and I don't know whether people will continue to go into the downtown in the numbers that will support um, vibrant restaurant industry, all those sort of little businesses that mm-hmm. thrived off the people who were commuting in and out every day. I don't really know what's going to happen about that. But I think when people are are looking back at it and saying, what are the neighborhoods that really worked? The the ones that continued to work very, very well are the, the ones that were established 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago. So the commercial drives, the main streets, the fourth avenues, mm-hmm. where people were are, are able to get out, say that they can work at home, um, but they're able to get out, they're able to get their services within the community, they're not having to drive uh, everywhere to do uh, all of that. Um, there's apparently been a big move out to the suburbs for some people. I don't see how sustainable that will be in the long run. But um, but again, we've been going on a seesaw battle between the car and, and people and cars.
compact communities since really the 1920s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, another part of, of your life is, is that of, uh, um, you, you are the president of the Vancouver Historical Society um, and, and have been for a number of years now. I was delighted um, uh, to read in the last few days um, various reports that you and others on the executive have put out um, that, that membership has actually grown in the, during the time of COVID. Is that right? Yes, yes, it has. So, you know, um, that idea that a, you know, historical society was something that would, people wouldn't be interested in just, you know, what does it say? The, uh, the, the news of my death is premature. Um, <laughs> we've been, we've been very happy with the response, uh, from people and response and donations. And we've been operating, uh, entirely virtually for now, I guess, 15 or 16 months. And um, and we'll continue to do that, I probably into 2022. And by that point, we'll be able to get back to the idea of having live lectures and people coming out to the Museum of Vancouver where they used to come. And the topics have become uh, very wide ranging. We uh, we have been able because of the virtual um, format. We've had. Um, Couple of people from Toronto. We've had people from Vancouver Island, and as an organization, we're not able to really pay for people's travel and accommodation uh, mm-hmm. very often. Um, but the range of topics we've had. Well, I guess over the we will have had four indigenous subjects um, over the course of just the last year. Um, we've got a lecture coming up on the. Uh, Wrap up of the of the landscapes of injustice project, which is about the um, Japanese Canadian internment and particularly the mm-hmm. seizure and sale of uh, of Japanese Canadian property during the first during the Second World War, and um, just a whole range of other things. And a, and a lecture coming up uh, on uh, the the deinstitutionalization of mental patients mm. in the 1970s. Yeah. The Mad Movement, as it was called, and there couldn't be anything much more timely for Vancouver 50 years after as, how is this working? Um, not having a river view that's open, having people being effectively, well, effectively or ineffectively treated in their neighborhoods for uh, mental illness. Yeah. By the way, we're talking um, uh, on Victoria Day, and uh, over the weekend there, there was news of, of the death of Cornelia, Cornelia Oberlander. Um, did you know her well? I didn't know her well. I knew her, and and uh, I knew her, and I knew her husband a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, the late husband Peter, and uh, well, yeah, just one of those giants going back to uh, an earlier era of of quite heroic building, Robson Square particularly, where she did the landscaping and work with Arthur Erickson is an example of that. But I think she, um, you know, she ties into a, a situation where. Uh, there were these people working here who did very innovative things and created a style. I don't know that I don't know that the style has has persisted maybe as much as a modernist would like to think it has. But you know, nevertheless, a, a creative and, uh, and and really important individual. And uh, rest in peace. I think she was 99 years old. Yeah, yeah, she was. Yeah, I mean, it's just remarkable to think about the city that that. Um She's seen over the last, say, more than half of her life, um, Robson Street, uh, finally around there by the by the art gallery. That's that's finally been closed down to traffic. I think that's something that that um, she and Erickson probably wanted back mm-hmm. in the day, right? Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, that idea of, of, of these, and Vancouver, when you think of it, didn't get the kind of big public squares that, yeah. that other cities had, and particularly European cities. And part of that was that it was effectively a real estate speculator's town. Mm. And um, everything was for sale. And there was very little in the way of an overall planning vision that came in until the 1920s, by which time uh, most everything had been bought up. Um, you know, and then ironically, of course, that the, probably the greatest planning decision that was ever made in Vancouver was that the dedication of Stanley Park. Mm. That, that whole peninsula didn't get developed um, into the forest of everything that we've got everywhere else. <clears throat> but then that resulted in the displacement of uh, indigenous people out of the park. So, yeah. you know, everything is complex in, mm. in these city building situations. So when you look look back at here and, and now and, and beyond even, um, as a historian, as an artist, are you, are you generally hopeful or, or do you find the, the glass half empty a lot of the time? Well, I think I I think it's pretty empty for uh, for a lot of people. Um, yeah, yeah. Somehow or another, you know, particularly young people, but poor being displaced in the city doesn't seem to have any mindset around um, going slow on change. And in order to preserve existing uh, affordable housing, uh, relatively affordable housing, and trying to stop this uh, march of speculation going on. And we are not unique in this uh, in North America or in the world in terms of having these problems. I mean, I think that the, the biggest issue is um, the gap between what people can earn and what it costs to, to find a place to live, whether you're going to rent it or whether you're going to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think back to the 1970s, uh, it was a period of very high inflation, very high interest rates, and housing prices going up until finally the bubble burst about 1981 or 1982. But in the 70s, if you didn't have a union job, uh, mm. And the unions managed to keep up, and they were you know, getting 12% wage increases a year and still falling behind inflation. But if you were just somebody who was working on minimum wage or someone who was um, you know, working in a kind of a freelance uh, arts way, you were falling further and further behind. And uh, I, I feel it's that way now in the 2020s with... Um, young people who were who were trying to get ahead, and whether they're trying to get ahead in a creative way, um, you know, to, to make their mark in music or in the arts or, or something like that, or whether they're just trying to um, make a living and have a life, it just seems very difficult. And, and so you despair of that and think, well, maybe the pendulum can swing back, but it's a different world, a completely different world from 40 or 50 years ago. Um, in terms of international flows of capital and the concentration of wealth and the handful of, uh, of people who have got it and what they're doing with that money. Yeah, I, 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 I shudder to think that for, for a lot of people, um, the, the expectation of a bubble bursting is something that they're looking forward to. put yeah. people into water in the same way that the bubble in, uh, in, in 1982 ruined a lot of people when yeah, yeah. prices dropped about 30%. But it just seems there's that, there's that disconnect now between um, who can make the money and how they make it yeah. 
And then when you've got capital, um, how much more of it you can make and how much further that gets you ahead of the people who are never able to put anything aside uh, just because they're they're just struggling from paycheck to paycheck. Um, it's often been that way. It yeah. was that way to a degree in the in the 1970s. That um, you know, I, I see people talking about what a wonderful time it was. It really wasn't. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Mortgage rates 11, 11 and 12 percent, um, and uh, you know, you just you just had no money left to do anything. And and compared with the you know, the, the, the luxuriousness of lifestyles now for a lot of people in the in 1970s, it was, it was a really rough time. But, you know, again, these things go in cycles, and uh, we can hope that it will somehow correct. I don't know what's going to happen if it doesn't. Yeah, indeed. indeed. I could talk um, all morning uh, with you, Michael, and um, I have been remiss in not having you on uh, more. Uh, it's been nine years since our, our last chat, and... and um, there's really no excuse for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. I do appreciate the opportunity to just chat with you and and uh, riff over all these different things that are going on. You know, it's a, it's a, got an interesting world, and uh, you know, I'm getting near the end of of my involvement in it. I suppose at, at age seventy, but um, you know, the still is fascinating and, and living vicariously through young people who are managing to make their way, I think it's a great way to, to look at it now. The website for more is at michaelkluckner.com. Here and Gone, artwork of Vancouver and beyond is published by Midtown Press. Michael Kluckner joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta. <laughs>